As we continue to make our way through the book of John, we continue to find ourselves in the place where the disciples wrestle with feeling abandoned by Jesus. Does God really love us? How can his love be true? When Jesus is departing and telling us things that sound very scary. When I was younger, I was actually late middle school or early high school, I was on a hike, a weekend hike with, with a group of, of dads and boys in our church in the Catskill Mountains. And the trip hadn't been planned quite right. The trail wasn't as well known as was thought. And as darkness descended, we realized that we were actually very far miles from where we were supposed to be. And so in the midst of that place, a group was separated off, and I was part of that smaller group, and we wondered, should we go forward and try to reach the other group, or should we hang back, or should we turn around, or should we somehow try to seek help? And it's in the midst of not knowing where we were, not knowing really anyone to guide us authoritatively, that the answer wasn't clear and we didn't know where to turn. And so often for us, just like the disciples, when we find ourselves in a place almost of darkness and that we question the love of God, we see Jesus leaving physically and the disciples wrestling with it and we feel like he is distant, like his love is not near to us, we find ourselves in that same place of, do I move forward? Do I move back? Do I look to something else? And as we worship, be reminded this morning are you loved by God even in the absence of Jesus? We sing together of that amazing and unfailing love in the chorus, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, you would lay down your life, that I would be set free. Are you still loved in the absence of Christ? Yes, you're loved by the God who has loved you to his death. Let's stand and give thanks. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder? Who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder? The King of glory. The King above all kings Yeah, this is amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You laid down your life That I would be set free I sing for all that you've done for me. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who rules the nations? With truth and justice Shines like the sun in All of its brilliance The King of glory The King above all kings Yeah, this is amazing grace This is unfailing love 
everlasting for all that you've done for me. Worthy is a lamb who slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy is the lamb who slain. Worthy is the king who conquers the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the king who conquers the grave. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Oh, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. I sing for all that you've done for me. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Sacrifices of our God are 
are a broken and a contrite heart against you and you alone have I sinned would you create in me a clean heart oh God restore in me the joy of your salvation would you create in me a clean heart, O oh God? Restore in me the joy of your salvation. Wash me white as snow. Please be seated. We come now to a time of confession, and we talked a little bit this morning in discipleship in real life about how we're born into the world, and as we grow, we begin to realize that the world is not a very safe place. It's not a predictable place, but it's actually a threatening place, and, and something eventually happens to communicate that in a very intimate way, like getting beat up, or having a friend hurt you deeply, or suffering the loss of a marriage. And it's in the midst of these things that we feel great pain, we feel great hurt. We're angry in the midst of that hurt, perhaps angry at ourselves, perhaps angry at those who have hurt us. And then at some level, at some point, we start to think, huh, I'm really angry at everyone around me. I'm angry at myself. But if I take a step back, I realize that the story that I'm living in and the pain I'm experiencing has been permitted by God. It's the story that he's given to me. Then you have a choice to make. You say, I'm going now to be angry with God, like Job, or I'm not comfortable being angry with God. I don't think that's right or proper, or I'm not willing to be that vulnerable because if I'm that vulnerable with God and I'm disappointed at that point, then I'll be so hurt I won't know what to do. And so it's so often at that point that rather than engaging and entering into the fear and the pain and being angry at God, we simply run away from Him and in avoiding that pain and hurt, we avoid Him. And that's one of the things that we're confessing this morning as Zach leads us later in reflecting on John 16. And our fear, our anger, our hurt, our pain, 
We so often hesitate and seek to deal with that ourselves rather than bringing it to God. And in that, we decide not to engage real relationship with him. And that's sin because he desires so much more for us. So together, let's repent of that very sin, after which there'll be a moment of silence for you to do your own business with God. Heavenly Father, I fear pain and run away from it. I fear pain and try to overpower it. I fear pain and become cynical. I fear pain and try to ignore it as if it didn't exist. I fear that pain is evidence that you don't love me. Forgive me for not trusting in your promises and believing the lie that you have abandoned me, but I know it is I who have abandoned you. Teach me to run to the cross rather than fronting away from it. Help me to believe that you can turn my sorrow into joy and that you have overcome the world. Amen. Hear the promises of God to those who truly repent of their sins and trust in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Thanks be to God. It's the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of each month, we take two offerings. If you're a guest with us, we encourage you to ignore both offerings, and we are not trying to load our pockets. But later on, we will take a benevolence offering that goes to meet the needs of those who are in economic distress. The ushers will come as we sing together.
Testament scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 41 verses 8 through 13. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame. And confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I and the one who will help you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Zach. This is the time in our service where we invite our youngest theologians to come up. If you are ages between four and nine, come on down. So many today. Good morning, boys and girls. Good morning. Did you have a good week playing in the snow? Yes. I'm sure you did, and I'm sure your parents are glad that school's back in session this next week. 
Boys and girls, the last couple of weeks you've done a really good job with the catechism questions. And so I'm going to ask you our catechism question today, which talks about who? Very good. Well, that's our question today. What is God? Oh, so many hands. Yes. Very good. The answer is just that. God is a spirit and does not have a body like us. But that's a big problem, boys and girls, because if he's a spirit, how do we know that he exists? It's very hard to know. It's like if I asked you to draw a picture of the wind, how would you do that? You can't see it. Just some wavy lines. You see wavy lines out there? It's hard to draw. It's very difficult. And so we have that problem when we go to India because the boys and girls there have the same questions that uh, we're asking today. They say, God is a spirit, so how can we see him? And so me and Pastor Ryan and Duane this week decided to sit down and answer that question. I was hoping that you could help us out and figure out what the best way to tell the kids in India what God is like. And so... Mine was, I said, my answer is that when God gets mad, he gets very angry, and he turns green, and he gets really bulky, and he gets really strong and muscular, and he starts breaking down walls and throwing cars all over the place. That sounds kind of like this. Yeah, doesn't it? Is that it? Yeah. No, no. No, it's not a self-portrait. But that's what I thought. Is that, is that a good way to describe God? No. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, then Pastor Ryan said, well, I've got it. He said, uh, he said this, is what, this is what God is like. He's really fat. He's got a big old belly. And every time he laughs, it just jiggles and shakes all over the place. He's got a big white beard. Yeah, and this is what, this is what Ryan drew. And so he was going to tell, so tell all the kids in India that God is like somebody who gives you an Xbox. He just gives you gifts. Does that sound like a good idea? No? A couple of, couple of yeses? And then Dwayne had an idea, too. He said, well, God is green, but he's not big, and he's not bulky and strong. He's actually really grumpy, and he's really hairy, and he's really mean to puppies, and he steals everybody's gifts at Christmas time." Do you... And he, and he, he drew, drew this picture here. And no, that's not a self-portrait of Dwayne either. So does the Grinch sound like a good idea of telling the kids? So none of these are really very good ideas, are they? Okay. Well, boys and girls, shh, hang on, hang on. Boys and girls, the problem is that sometimes when we try to imagine God, we actually make him what we want him to look like. And God knows this is a problem. Shh. And God knows this is a problem, but he solves it for us. And who does he give to show us what he's like? How do we know what God is like? Yes. He gives us Jesus. And he shows us exactly what he's like. So when we see Jesus, we see God and we know what he's like. So let's pray. Shh. How do we pray? Let's pray together and thank God that he sent us Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not stay distant from us and you showed us exactly what you're like and you sent us Jesus. And you showed us that you want the children to come unto you. You want us to come unto you as children because you are a good and gracious Father. We ask that you would reveal that truth into the little hearts up here today. 
and that they would know you as Father all their days. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now is the time where if you have a child between four and seven years old, they can come to the front and they can grab a children's worship bulletin. And while we do that, you can stand and greet one another in the name of our Lord.
All right, I'll invite you to make your way back to your seat. Boys and girls, I sense a little cabin fever this morning. It's good that you spared Pastor Zach this morning. Let us unite our hearts in prayer this morning. We pray with me. Father, we marvel at your love and though your plan of redemption and the ways in which you're working and moving through your church are sometimes mysterious to us, we thank you for the great privilege of participating, that your grace is extended to us when we did not deserve it and you were not uh, under obligation, you were not compelled to offer it, but in your kindness you have had mercy on us and for that we are profoundly grateful. We pray, Father, that we would increasingly I find our hope and our salvation in you and in nowhere else. And in this, for our hearts to be made whole, for us to be unified more and more with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in this to become more and more your children. Father, we pray, we thank you that love casts out fear and pray that we would know at a deeper and deeper level uh, indeed what that means. Father, we lament with those who lament in our congregation and pray for your grace and mercy to them. We pray for those who suffer from Martha with shoulder injury and bronchitis. We pray that you would be the sweetness of grace to her and would heal her. And in the midst of her suffering, it would be opportunity for her to draw near to you. We continue to ask for the healing of Patty Swearingen and pray likewise that you would be merciful and kind to her, that you would... You would bring her to health, but in the midst of that suffering, may it be opportunity for her to know such sweetness in your grace, such intimacy in your presence, that it makes that pain and suffering uh, diminish. Father, we pray for those who are hurting this morning and perhaps have not given voice to their hurt. We ask that you would meet them in the place that they find themselves, that you would lift their heads uh, in hope, and that you would encourage them. We pray uh, for Kevin Meyer this morning and his family. We, uh, we pray for him unjustly terminated this week. We ask that you would be grace and mercy to him, that it would be opportunity for you to provide something even better for him, that we would celebrate your goodness and marvel at your providence in the midst of, of the suffering that you have drawn into, him into. But in the midst of that suffering again, may, may it be opportunity. May it be opportunity like it is for all of us for, uh, for the ways in which we engage life to be whittled away so that our hearts might be broken and we might cry out to you and meet you in new and more profound ways. We pray, Father, uh, for the singles in our congregation, that you would be with them and encourage them. Uh, we pray, Father, that if they seek uh, to be married, that you would provide that for them, or as a good gift from your hand. And Father, for those who are divorced, we pray for your comfort and your kindness to them. We pray that you would encourage them and that you would uh, grow them in the grace and wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray for our marriages that are always under threat, and it is difficult for two people to become one. So we pray for your grace in this, that you would unify us together and that our marriages would become healthier and healthier in such a way that we 
We boast to the world what it is uh, that Christ is the bridegroom of the church. Father, we pray for the upcoming Green Door Race, that it would be opportunity to raise tons of money for the global poor, that it would be opportunity for us to connect with those projects and uh, opportunity to have a lot of fun. So we pray that you would bless the logistics and make them run smoothly. And we ask that by your grace and by your providence, it might be by far the best attended race and the race that has raised by far the most money to date uh, for those projects and for CRI. Father, we pray too for those, uh, for Joel and Stephanie St. Clair, church planters in Washington, D.C., whom we support. We ask that you would cause their church to continue to grow and to thrive and to be a place of light, a a well uh, that offers the water of Christ to the surrounding community, and that you uh, might receive more praise and glory as knees bend and tongues confess that you are Lord in that place. And I pray, too, for those missionaries in our midst, Father, who are raising their support. I pray that you would encourage them and give them strength in that process and that you would provide for their needs. (coughs) Father, we pray that you would bless Zach as he brings the word to bear on us this morning. May your spirit be upon him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I hope you had a good week. I'm sure it was hectic with the snow, school days. I'm sure maybe it gave you more time to figure out what color the dress was, white or gold or blue or black. It's white and gold. Um, No, uh, it's actually good to be up here because um, I have not been up here for like six months, which means two things. One, things can get back to normal a little bit. And two, uh, I'm done with all my ordination stuff. And so I passed through that back in February, and uh, kind of what's happened the last six months is um, the session and and Ryan just gave me all the time to get all of that done. And so it's something that if you don't really kind of give yourself to it, it's it's very hard to complete. And so they uh, kind of cleared my schedule and uh, cleared my responsibilities and allowed me just to focus on that. And uh, uh, and so I, well, all that to say is is I wanted to, to obviously give a number of thank yous because Ryan, Took a, big, uh, took a big burden to do that, and basically has preached for the last six months. And uh, uh, he reminded me of that when we got in the car after leaving Presbytery, when I'd actually passed the ordination, and he said, hey, congratulations. I'm taking a sabbatical for the next two years. So, <laughs> so uh, I, said, hey, I said, great, let's jump right in. No, but um, I did want to thank uh, you know, Ryan in the session, obviously, and I've, I've done that uh, to them. But in a couple weeks will be my installation service, and so uh, it'll be a special service where actually uh, two very close friends of mine will come. Uh, one of them was the best man at my wedding, and he will lead the service. And then uh, my other friend from uh, seminary will uh, do a charge to me. And then uh, you'll, you'll see me take vows uh, uh, for you on your behalf to be, be a shepherd here. But um, I don't get to say anything that day other than just yes when they ask me the questions. And so I wanted to basically just take the opportunity now and say how deeply appreciative I am of all the support that you gave me and the fact that so many of you were ready for me to be done so that you might have more of me and just the constant questions and, and, and people asking, uh, you know, how I'm doing and how it's coming. Um, it, it was great. And, you know, a couple of people had asked if that means now that I'm ordained, if I'm leaving, I can honestly say nothing could be further from the truth, that uh, this is home for me and uh, I got ordained so that I could be here. And this place is very special. And so, 
I will take some vows in a couple weeks, but I think the greatest one I could give you uh, to be a shepherd is to tell you how much I love you, all of you, and how special and precious you are to me. And um, this place is home. And I look forward to what God has in store for us because I think it's going to be really great. Oh, look, Dwayne's crying. (laughs) All right, we're in the middle of John. John chapter 16, we're coming to the end of Jesus' final night with his disciples, and uh, I'm not going to lie, it's, uh, John's, John's a bear. He says some heavy stuff, and it's very difficult to work your way through, but hopefully today we will find comfort in uh, the midst of all of his discussion on pain and absence and sorrow. And so if you would, I would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. And you will find us today in chapter 16, verses 16. To 33. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to ask you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Ryan mentioned it last week in his, in his sermon, a story that you've probably heard of by now, the story of the uh, 21 Christians that were martyred in Egypt on the beach. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it in the news, all of them dressed up in orange jumpsuits, like prisoners down on their knees, with the men, the militants behind them dressed in all black, covered head to toe with machetes in their hands. You can see all of the men with their eyes shut quietly praying as the narrator 
basically parades this list of all of the sins and grievances of these Christians and why they deserve death. And then at the end of the, the narration, after the, uh, after the acts are committed, and I'm being delicate, um, after all that happens, the camera pans down, and evidently the, the waves crashing up, you see this red water crashing up and down on the surf. And as you think about that, and you hear all of this, maybe it makes you enraged, and you feel outraged, and you have to ask yourself the question, where is Jesus in all of it? Where is Jesus in all of this? As I thought about this passage this week and thought about this news story, I remember the old Christian poem that I know that no doubt you've actually seen on many walls in your life, bathrooms, doctor's offices, you name it. It's somewhere, footprints in the sand. The uh, story with the poem, maybe, you've had, maybe you have a bookmark at home, just in a book somewhere with footprints in the sand on it. And it talks about the dreamer walking on the beach of life. And he sees the footprints. And then he looks back and at certain places where it was the most difficult time in his life. He looks back and he only sees one set of footprints. And so he asks the question. He says, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I noticed that in my most difficult times, there's only one set of footprints. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And what a profound question that is. But the thing is, is that it's not a fluffy, airy, breathy question that's, you know, a precious moments question. You know, Jesus, why weren't you there for me? Why weren't you there at my darkest times? The Bible presents that as a question that is filled with anger and doubt and rage. And it's all driven and motivated by fear. Because when the Bible asks that question, and it asks it all the time, it asks the question, where were you? Where were you at? Why weren't you here? Why is it that you always make promises that you never, ever keep? All this happens, and you leave me. You draw me in just to abandon me. Where were you? And you can see it when Israel is brought out of Egypt just to go straight into the wilderness. You see it with Elijah when he's on the run for his life and he's, out and he's in the cave and he says to God, I am the only one left who trusts you. I'm the only one left. You've let everyone else walk away and I've been so jealous for you and this is how you repay me. I'm all alone and evil has won. You hear in Psalm 22 where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have laid my life in the dust and you've left me for dead. You don't see that on a lot of bookmarks. That's exactly how the Bible asks the question. And maybe as you think about asking that question yourself, is that maybe God invites all your anger, all of your rage, all of your fear and frustration and pain. Maybe he wants you to ask that question. Because if the Bible is true in what it says, that human beings are created for this unimaginable relationship and communion with God, then perhaps the deepest question your heart can actually ask, perhaps the deepest existential question as a human being you can ask is, God, where are you? Where are you at? I don't see you. I want you to wrestle today with that question. I want you to ponder with me the very difficult and sobering truth that if you do want to follow after Jesus, at some point you will feel alone and you will feel abandoned and you will ask God why. And that can seem scary. 
Very scary. But I think we do find comfort today in what we see Jesus talking to his disciples because the disciples had the same questions. See in verses 16 to 20, they're, they're going back and forth. Jesus is telling them that he's going to leave them. You know, right at the very beginning, he says, a little while I'll be with you, and then a little while I won't be, and then a little while I'll be back with you, and then a while I won't be. You know, it's just like this on-again, off-again relationship, you know. It's like you're here, you're not here, and it's like, what's, what's going on? I don't understand what you're telling me. And of course, he doesn't understand what they're telling him, but he does understand that it's very difficult for them to hear that he's leaving. But it's really easy to take that story and actually completely strip it of its force because we kind of know how the story goes. So like we, we see Jesus say, in a little while I'll be here, then a little while I won't be, and then I'll be back again. It's like, oh, he'll be resurrected. No big deal. I already know how the story goes. And if you think about it that way, you don't enter into the story. You completely, completely miss the point because this story is your story. It's the same story that you live out. That moment where you feel like Jesus has gone and he's leaving you and things didn't quite turn out the way you wanted. Because I think this news is absolutely devastating to the disciples. So think about it this way. A week before they come into Jerusalem, they experience a triumphal entry, and the whole entire city is gathered around, and they're completely and unbelievably excited that Jesus has come in, riding on a donkey, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they are all received as conquering heroes. And they all come in, and they, you know, of course they would say, look at this. We are being received like we should be received. Finally, the nation of Israel will be the greatest nation that has ever lived once again. The glory days of David are going to be a far, just a far cry compared to what Jesus is going to do. This is the guy that resurrects people from the dead. Now's the time he's going to take the Roman Empire and wipe it off the face of the earth, and the kingdom of Israel will rise and be the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen. And actually, what better time to do that than Passover? It's almost poetic. The night they gather now when Jesus is talking about it, they come into Passover thinking now's the time we can figure out what we're going to do and, you know, to rise to the throne. Now we can have a little bit of a battle plan to see what Jesus has up his sleeve. And what better time to do it than actually the very night that we celebrate God completely destroying the Egyptian captors and freeing God's people. It's perfect. And then Jesus begins to address it. But he tells them something completely different. He tells them that they'll deny him and abandon him. He says that the world will hate them and despise them, that they won't, be, they won't rise to power, they'll actually be kicked out of synagogues, and the world will kill them in the name of God. And then he says, I'm telling you these things so that when the hour comes, you will remember that it's all going perfectly according to plan. And how blindsided the disciples have to feel in that moment. And how blindsided do you feel when that happens to you? Because what Jesus is doing is he actually comes in to the disciples, and what's so hard and difficult is that his agenda is not theirs, and he completely confronts it and gives them something completely different. And how often does that happen to us? God comes in and confronts what agenda we have for ourselves, job, marriage, money, spouse, all of these different things that we want to be on our terms, and then Jesus comes in and confronts it. And we say, Jesus, where are you? Where are you at? I don't get it. So what do you do when Jesus feels absent? Maybe you got married and one day you just kind of woke up and realized that your spouse will never ever fulfill the hopeful expectations that you had for them when you first got married. Or maybe for some of you, you had hopes that this church would be a place where there wouldn't be any sinners in it, where nobody would hurt you, would disappoint you. Or maybe sin has such a grip on your family that you, you have hopes that it could be different. 
but all you see is brokenness in your family and brokenness in your own life. And you really say, Jesus, really? You, you saved me for this? Nothing? To not ever do anything in my life? Not ever change me? Could you just give me a break and make something go my way? I think Jesus knows exactly how hard it is to hear because he knows, he knows exactly how hard it was for the disciples to hear it. He says in verse 6 from last week, he says, I know that he, me telling you these things fills your heart with sorrow. And as he's saying all of this, he can certainly see the look on the disciples' faces where they're saying, please don't let it be this way. Come on, certainly we can work something out. Don't let it be this way. I think what makes it even harder for us to hear is that Jesus promises us pain, and we don't like that. I think a lot of it, well, one, we're Americans. We're Americans, and we don't like pain. And I personally think that our whole entire culture, to some degree, could, we could just simply be, American culture could be described just as an, an economy that is completely devoted to the idea that you can avoid pain and discomfort. You can avoid pain and discomfort and loneliness. Our culture completely tells us that pain is something that you can escape from. And Jesus says, it's not. Not if you want to follow me. So when he says it's going to hurt, of course it's hard to hear. But the beauty is that this is where we actually have to do the heavy lifting of the gospel. Because if the gospel doesn't say anything about pain, then it's not worth believing in. Because whatever gospel you believe in, it better deal with pain because it's coming for you. It's coming for you in some way or another. And if it doesn't deal with pain, then what's the point? So Jesus then begins to comfort his disciples. And so how does he comfort them? What does he offer them that is precious? And what is he offering you today for comfort? We see at the end of verse 20, Jesus makes the claim that their, their sorrow will turn to joy. Their sorrow will turn to joy. And so, of course, when you're sitting around the table with 11 guys at dinner, talking about sorrow and joy, what do you do? You talk about childbirth, right? Which is odd because it's just so funny that Jesus is with 11 guys talking about childbirth. If there's anything that just kind of makes men that have had children just kind of stare off into the distance, just bring up childbirth in a conversation because they kind of go to this place in their mind's eye where they just remember the screams and the yells and like the, what do you want me to do? Hold my hand. Okay, sweet. Just, there's just all the, I want to take the pain away and I can't. And it even happened to Ryan this week. So I was telling him a little bit about it last week, and, uh, and he just kind of stared off to, into the distance for a second. <laughs> and he started laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? And he goes, childbirth is just so traumatic. <laughs> and it's true. It is incredibly traumatic. But I think the disciples would have actually had a probably a little bit better idea about childbirth than we might have given them credit for. So back then, you didn't have hospitals, and you didn't have pain medication and epidurals. You just had that baby right there in the house, right in the neighborhood. And so when a woman is giving birth right next door to you in this little small village, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it. You can probably hear it for miles. The woman crying out and screaming in pain. And of course, everyone in the whole village gathers around the doorway waiting for the woman to give birth, really waiting for all of the cries of the mother to be replaced by the first cries of the baby, waiting for that joy to come. So why is Jesus telling his disciples this kind of story about birth? I think the point that he's making about the nature of pain in the gospel is that there's something in pain that you can't quite see unless you go through it. And there's something that the gospel offers you 
that you have to go through pain to get it. You can't have a baby unless you give birth to it. So the way I would ask you this is, is are there any mothers in here that regret having their child because of the pain of childbirth? Like you just sit at dinner and then, you know, you look at your kid and just say, hey, finish your veggies. Oh, you know, and by the way, I almost forgot. You caused me so much pain when I gave birth to you. You're grounded, you know? <laughs> no dessert. Go to your room. Get out of here. Of course not. And honestly, if, you, if you've had multiple children, I, any woman you talk to that's had multiple kids, she always knows her tough one. She always remembers her tough one, you know? Not like she takes it out, you know, disciplines that kid harder because it was the painful childbirth compared to the others. And I would say that if you've had more kids than one, you know which one is your difficult labor. But I would say to you, and I would even, as a man that has not gone down that road, I would still, would still ask you, isn't the pain of that child, of giving birth to that child, isn't that what makes that child precious to you? Isn't it what makes that child that cherished part of your connection with them? And when you look at them, do you regret it? No, you would say, I'd do it all over again. I'd do it all over again to know your smile, to know your laugh, to know your, when you, even when you act up on snow days. You wouldn't trade that for anything. Because the pain is a reminder of why they're so precious. And that's exactly what Jesus wants his disciples to see and wants you to see when you think about pain. He wants you to understand that Jesus doesn't take away pain. He comes in and he makes it precious. He makes it precious to where you wouldn't trade it for anything because he gives a childbirth narrative because he wants you to reinterpret your pain. That maybe it's not something you run from. Maybe, if the gospel's true, it's something that you run to. He wants you to see that out of your pain, he can create something precious. And I think that's one of the hardest times to see when you're going through difficult times, is that when you go through really hard, trying, challenging times, you actually doubt everything that you think you know to be true. You doubt the gospel, you ask, God, where are you? Okay, you know, yeah, I know God's with me, and you have a, a bookmark, but it's not enough in the moment to take away the pain. It makes you doubt, and you wonder, you just kind of wish that there's some possible way that all the pain you're going through could actually have some sort of purpose and meaning and value because it's so hard when you're in the middle of pain because it puts blinders on you. It's so impossible to see the joy on the other side. And you hope that in some way it could all be redeemed because you feel so untethered, you feel so unanchored, and you just want it all to go away. And you just say, what is all of this for? And I think we forget so easily the promises of the gospel when we go through difficult times. I think that's why Jesus, on the very last night, he's with his disciples. Last, last week's sermon and this week is just one chapter. It's one story. He spent so much time talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And I wish that when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he called it like, you know, something cooler, like the destroyer of pain and sorrow, but he doesn't. He calls him the helper. He calls him the comforter. Because you so desperately need comfort. But how does he comfort you and what does he help you with? I think we begin to see it when Jesus begins to talk about the Father. In verses 23 to 33, he begins to talk about the disciples, talk to the disciples about the Father. And it may not seem very significant at first, 
But I think there's an incredible invitation in these verses because he leaves telling them about this completely new access they will have to the Father. And at face value, there may not be a huge wow factor. But if you go on, you actually later on when you read the disciples and you read them go on and they write gospels and then they write letters to churches, this idea, once they got it, invades everything that they write to the churches. So I'm a, I'm a big Eddie Vedder fan. I think he's one of the coolest dudes on the planet. Lead singer of Pearl Jam. There's a guy named Steve Gleason that uh, was a former football player for the uh, New Orleans Saints. He's famous because the year they won the Super Bowl in the playoffs, he actually, uh, whenever they'd actually pin down, I think it was the Panthers, they pinned down the Panthers all the way back into their own end zone, and they needed to score a touchdown. It was at the end of the game, and this guy comes out of nowhere, blocks the punt, recovers it in the end zone. They win the game. Guy will never pay for another meal in New Orleans ever. He's just a, a hero. Life is as it should be. And then, a year later, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was really a very aggressive form of it. And now he goes from being a professional NFL player in the peak physical condition, and now he just probably weighs less than 100 pounds, and he actually has an electronic wheelchair that actually has the mechanism like uh, Stephen Hawking does to where you can actually talk through a uh, digital recorder because he can't talk. And he's a huge Pearl Jam fan, and Pearl Jam found out about him, and they began to work with him to raise awareness for Lou Gehrig's disease. But the thing that Steve Gleason is doing right now is that he's actually recording his entire life because, one, he can't talk to his son, who's three years old. He just has to tell him the best he can and record his entire life. And he has to take all those moments ahead that he knows his son's going to go through, and he has to give him advice so that he can tell his son what his father would say because he's not going to be there for it. And so Steve Gleason actually did an ESPN special where he interviewed Pearl Jam, and he had a one-on-one -on -one interview with Eddie Vedder. And uh, Steve came to him and said, Eddie, you didn't know your dad. You didn't know your dad at all. What would you have wanted your dad to tell you? And Eddie kind of thinks about it for a second and says, wow, coming from you, as you tell your son, that's an incredibly meaningful question, and I appreciate you asking me that. So he gets quiet and he thinks about it. And then he says, you know, I think I, what I want from my dad. And then he goes completely silent. And you can see the words get caught up in his throat. He says, I just wish that I would have known my dad loved me. I wish I could hear him tell me that he's proud of me. I wish I could tell him, he'd, he'd tell me that he thinks I'm a good man and that he really loves me. That's what I want more than anything. Here's this guy who's known the success at the greatest level, and nothing he has received, no joys he's pursued, have ever compared to the joy that, he would have, that he'd get from hearing his father say, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. And Jesus is telling the disciples about this access to the Father for a very specific purpose, because he's telling them what, that what you really long for and what you really need in your pain is a father that loves you. That's why Paul says multiple times throughout Romans, he's, and, and even in Galatians, he says, you've been given the Spirit of God so that it can remind you of the Father's love. 
so that it can enable you to actually cry out, Abba, Father, because that's when the gospel finally gets legs on it and becomes real. It's in those moments where you cry out, in those moments where God has the opportunity to prove his promises true and to hear him say, I am with you and I love you. And the funny thing is that might not seem like a big deal right now. It might not seem like a, something that gets you particularly excited. But I will say this. Jesus wants them to know that because he says in verse 27 that the Father loves them dearly and that right now it might not seem like much to the disciples, but he's saying this and he's about to travel the darkest, loneliest, most painful road of suffering of all time. And he says what gives him comfort is that he knows that he will not be alone and the Father will be with him. And I said earlier that whatever gospel you believe in, it better be able to deal with pain. It better be able to deal with pain because this is where you actually have to, ask, you actually have to challenge yourself with how big is your gospel. Because last week we talked about the fact that there's multiple coping mechanisms that we have with pain, multiple different responses. And I think with each one of those different responses, we just have a gospel that goes along with it that we believe. But pain is when it actually tests your gospel and when it's actually true. That's why I think people that believe in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel are just going to end up being disappointed. Why? Because when life really gets difficult, nobody wants a new car. As if whenever your life gets really hard, you, want to, you just pray for a new house. As if a larger bank account answered your questions about where is God. Or it's the idea that if you suffer, you don't need to think about that because you just need to think more positively about life. Just pretend like suffering isn't that big of a deal and that all the gospel is is just this more elaborate version of turn that frown upside down. Or maybe it's the person that pretends they don't feel pain. They don't ever feel pain. It makes me stronger. It makes me better. Like you said last week, that's great thinking if you're a Buddhist. That pain is an illusion. As if whenever you're going through a difficult time, somebody comforts you by coming to you and saying, hey, it's not real. Let it go. Because if you're made for a relationship, then consider that what you want most in your suffering is to know that you're not alone. Because I think what you really want is someone to come to you and say, I see all of your pain, and I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. And I'm not going to abandon you. It's those moments where we hear the voice of God truly speak to us. I think that's why C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures but he shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's why I say, give me a gospel that talks about that. Don't give me a pathetic gospel where all God does is run from pain just as much as I do. Give me a God that actually comes in and steps into it, invites me into it and says, yes, let me show you how I am more powerful, I am better, and I will strengthen you in the midst of pain. That's how you know the gospel is real is when you actually see pain defeated and overcome with something better. But you'll never taste it unless you're willing to step into it and say, Father, help me. Please help me. So when you think about the pain in your own life, pain you've experienced. Remember Elijah, that he was drawn by God into the wilderness to be alone just so that he could remove all the distractions and speak to him. 
in a calm and quiet voice. And like Gomer and Hosea, he draws you out into the wilderness so that he can speak tenderly to you, so that he can woo you, and you can fall in love with him by realizing how much he loves you. And he can show you that his love is far better than all the other lovers you've given yourself to, all the other coping mechanisms, all the other strategies. And you can truly know what satisfying love is. And the thing is, is that Revelation 22 tells us this is exactly how God works. He is the one who comes down, steps into your pain, wipes away every tear. He's the one. That's, that's his privilege. He goes out of his way to say that that is the father's privilege to come down and wipe away the pain and sorrow and sadness of his children. That's a daddy's job. But if you're always avoiding pain, then you will never have any reason for him to do that. So what are you to do with all of this? What are you to do with all this difficult teaching? Because I think it's really easy to nod your head at. It's like, okay, whenever I go through pain, I'll just trust God loves me. Great. No. It's not going to work. Because the truth is, is that the gospel isn't just something you comprehend. It's not a lecture. It's something you have to experience in real life. And the disciples do the same thing. They say, hey, Jesus, finally, now we get it. They say in verses 29 to 30, like, oh, now you're not speaking to us in figures of speech. Now we totally get it. We totally understand. Perfect. And Jesus says, no, you don't actually quite get it yet. Because the hour is coming when all of you will be scattered to your own home. And all of you will abandon me. And when you have the opportunity to follow me to the cross, you'll run the other way. And I think this is true of us as well. That no matter how much we understand the gospel, there'll always be those times where we want to run away from the pain that we see. Whenever we're given a cross, we want to run. So what's a cross in your life right now? What's an area of pain that you could step into and ask for Jesus to heal you? A place that you could just go in and a place that feels hopeless. Your marriage? Is it a betrayal from a friend? A wayward child? Pain from somebody that has caused you sitting in this room that you haven't talked to for a long time? Maybe a friend that you haven't talked to for years because it's so hard to let go of that pain they caused you? Maybe it's hard to enter into community here because you just remember hurts and disappointments from past churches. Maybe you like the teaching, maybe you like the worship music, but community is something that's always been distant because you're afraid that everyone's just going to hurt you. And this is just how people are. And just like the disciples, you fear that cross and you run back to your own home. You run to that place that feels secure. And you always run back to life as it always was. But you'll still always have that question. Jesus, where are you? And last week it said that if you're avoiding suffering in your life, then you're avoiding Jesus. I think that what it means is that you're passing up the joy that Jesus offers you and the hope that he actually does bring new life. I think if you're not willing to step into pain, it means that you're settling for a a life where the gospel is just simply an idea. And it's always an idea, but it never really changes your life. It never really brings the healing that it promises. And so you can talk about the gospel. You can talk about facts about the gospel. You can completely memorize the gospel, but in the end, it never becomes a testimony. It never becomes something that changes you. You never have that story that says, I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I walk. I was dead, and now I'm alive. My marriage was garbage. 
We were roommates for years, decades, but now I have never felt more love for my spouse than I do now. Or maybe you'd say, I'm so filled with anger and rage at everything and everybody, and I'm so exhausted, but now I know a forgiving and restful heart. Or maybe you would say, I've never tried to know anybody. Maybe your story would say, I never really wanted to know anybody because I never really wanted them to know me because I was so afraid they'd reject me. But now I know how deeply loved I am and that I am able to freely love others. I think experiencing the power of the gospel in your life doesn't come by being cynical about pain or pretending it doesn't exist or trying to conquer it or overcome it or ignore it. It comes by actually facing it and being honest about it and stepping into it and trusting Jesus, trusting that the Father can take your pain and turn it into something precious because he's not found in our coping mechanisms. The only place you're going to find him is at the cross. And the thing is that Jesus tells his disciples in verse 33 that he says all of this, not because he wants them to be, feel sad and disheartened, but he wants them to have peace. And when was the last time you had any peace? I said a while back that Amazon came out with, a, came out with a statistic that said the most highlighted verse on the Kindle fire since it's been out is Philippians 4, 6 through 7. But with thanksgiving, make all your prayers and supplications known to God, and the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. The most highlighted verse, which I think is incredibly ironic, that we have a culture that completely runs away from pain, and they have no peace. And we're desperate for it. So where is God in all of your pain? Where is God when you cry out for help? He's right there in the middle of it with you. He's beckoning you forward, inviting you to come closer to him. And honestly, even though that precious thing on the other side is really hard to see, you have to trust that the Father loves you and trust in his promises when he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Take heart and have peace because I have overcome the world. Now step into pain and let me prove it to you. Let's pray. Father, the constant of this world is pain. We live in a broken world. And we all have so many different coping mechanisms that we have to deal with it. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see today that there's a type of pain that happens that you make beautiful. That your true power is shown not in just simply eradicating pain, but actually taking something ugly and broken and destitute and making, making it beautiful and gorgeous. How, Father, how powerful do you have to be to be able to take pain? And how precious do you have to be for Jesus to go through all that he went through so that he might be one with you? I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength and courage to face the pain in our life. 
I pray that you would soften our hearts to allow us to let that be the microphone by which you arouse our deaf minds and hearts and ears. And I pray today for those that I know, many I know that are suffering greatly. I pray that you would remind them of your love and that just like a child, sometimes all they want is to know that you love them and to be held close. I pray, Father, that we would not fear our pain because it makes us feel vulnerable and weak. But that's exactly that the moments that you want, you want us to cry out. You want us to cry out because you are a good father that runs to the rescue of their children. I pray that you'd give us strength. And I pray that you'd give us the faith to trust that you have overcome the world. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. What better example of what Zach was talking about than to think of the table? The brokenness and suffering that is embodied here is joy and love and meaning brought out of that very suffering for us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have been baptized into his body, you are welcome at this table to come and receive life. You don't have to be a member of Trinity Harbor Church. But if you find yourself in a place and are unsure of whether this table actually offers life and nourishment in Christ, then you might partake of it in an unworthy fashion. And Paul warns against that in 1 Corinthians 11, and so we encourage you not to partake to avoid any unnecessary judgment and instead to consider some of the prayers that are offered for you on page 14 of your worship guide. Together, then let's give thanks for the amazing gift that is before us. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is right that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, everlasting God. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with the choirs of heaven and with all the faithful of every time and place who forever sing to the glory of your name. give you thanks that the body of the Lord Jesus was broken, that we might be healed, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We do this, Lord, in remembrance of you. Amen. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and having given thanks, said, this is my body which is broken for you as often as you do so, do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner also after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he should come again. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. 
Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. Uh, So those who are helping to serve communion this morning to come forward. We serve both wine and grape juice for communion, and you'll know the difference because the grape juice is lighter in color is on the outside rim of the tray. Beginning in the front rows, we'd ask that you come down the front. Uh, Beginning in the front rows, we ask that you come down the center aisle. Receive the elements, but wait to partake of them. Return to your seats by the side aisles, and once everyone has been served, then we will partake together. Please come. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come, into thy freedom, gladness and light. Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of my sickness and into Thy health, out of my wanting and into Thy wealth, out of my sin and into Thyself, Jesus, I come to Thee. Jesus, I come into the glorious King of thy cross. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of her sorrows and into thy bond, out of thy storm and into thy calm, out of distress into jubilant song. Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into Thy blessed will to abide, Jesus, I come to Thee.
the depths of ruin untold Into the peace of thy sheltering fold Ever thy glorious face to behold Jesus, I come to thee Jesus, I come to thee Jesus, I come to thee The blood of the new covenant, let us partake together. Our Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that when the cross loomed large, and even though you would desire to avoid it and ask that it be taken away, that you would not endure it, you still ran faithfully to it when it was the Father's will. May we be so brave. And rely on you in such a way that we might also know the joy of resurrection. We ask humbly in your name. Amen. As we stand to sing, we'll take our benevolence offering. As I said earlier, on the first Sunday of each month, we take an additional offering. And that offering is administered by the deacons of the church and goes exclusively to meet the needs of those who are in financial distress. So uh, please, as we've received from this table generously, we seek to give generously. And if you're visiting with us, please don't feel compelled to give at all. Let's stand and give thanks for what we've received here. Oh, love that will not let me go. Yes. 
family receive God's blessing. If I was on the right page. There we go. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who are loved by their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Ryan's got a couple of announcements. All right, friends, tonight is the Veritas Parents Meeting happening at 8.30, so please be mindful of that. If you have any questions, you can check with Cameron. The Tenebrae, which means shadows service, is our Good Friday service in which we celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus, which sounds ironic even when you say it. But you can hardly celebrate Easter without commemorating Good Friday. Some uh, description is in your worship guide. You can look at that, but please be marking that on your calendar. And it is an outstanding opportunity to invite people into the church to experience something different and something that we very much think describes what we value at Trinity Harbor Church. The Green Door 5K is coming up. Listen, there is no reason not to participate. You can run. You can get up early and eat muffins and donuts and set up a tent. You can stand there and laugh at the runners and hand out water. However you want to volunteer and participate, you can. Please do. Think of also giving. Uh, generously remember all of the proceeds go to CRI and the projects with which we're involved. Half's going to the projects with which we're directly involved in India. And friends, pray for the deacons. They have really been struggling. Uh, remember, the elders and deacons are facing off in the uh, green door Door dash where you carry a door this year. And um, Nathan apparently has threatened the elders that he, you know, Zach noticed that he was bouncing his pecs the other week. He is now boasting that he's going to carry a door in his pecs. We are not intimidated. We are going to carry four doors to their one. So deacons, it's go time. We're so ready. We've got Gary Swearingen, ninja of all ninjas. The women's Bible study is tonight. 
uh, happening at 6.30. And today is the first Sunday uh, fellowship meal. Part of our mission statement is that we believe that we are called to grow in community together. Growing in community together requires spending time together. And so on the first Sunday of each month, we seek to spend time together over lunch. If you haven't brought anything or forgot, please don't worry. We will try to make sure there's enough food. Remember the rules. Uh, children should not go downstairs without parental supervision, number one. Number two, don't go through the line twice until everybody's been through once. Number three, especially today, apparently we have plenty of food, but a little light on desserts. So one dessert per person until everyone has been served. I see great disappointment, but keep that in mind. Let me pray for lunch and we will be dismissed. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you and thank you for the family that you have birthed for eternity, that we call you brother and friend because you have reached out to us. May we now reach out to one another in kindness and mercy and love and humility and seek to build the friendships that we have here as we dine together. We thank you for the food and the blessings of your provision. In Jesus' name, amen.